Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlaute Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. The captain, you know, he went on the radio and he's like, we just want to make sure everyone knows he has a Paralympic champion on the plane. On the podium is back with more Olympians and Paralympians sharing their remarkable stories. On the podium, listen now wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Landslides, earthquakes, wildfires and tornadoes. Sounds rather like an end-of-days scenario, doesn't it? But this is the world that has captivated today's guest over the course of a career that's taken him all over the globe studying natural hazards. Bruce Malamud is Wilson Chair of Hazard and Risk and Executive Director of the Institute of Hazard, Risk and Resilience at Durham University. His work in natural hazards has opened up new ways of understanding these events, from statistical models to show how groups of hazards occur to examining the cascading relationship between multiple hazards. For example, an earthquake causing a flood which leads to a landslide. A lifelong passion for discovery has taken Bruce from volunteering with the Peace Corps in West Africa to fieldwork in India. And he not only studies the hazards themselves, but the people and communities they affect, with recent work focusing on how human activities can influence disaster impact and response, and vitally how this information can better inform risk management processes, with the ultimate aim, of course, of saving lives. Professor Bruce Malamud, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jim. An obvious question, what is it about natural hazards that fascinates you? I think it's not just natural hazards. It's really the world around us, the environment. And I think this stems to a period I spent in Africa for two years in the U.S. Peace Corps after my undergraduate degree, that I became fascinated with the extremes that were around me, extremes that can result from the processes that are our Earth's environment or the humans interacting with the Earth itself. Mm. I mentioned, Bruce, in the introduction that you've travelled a great deal at various points in your life, and we're going to come to them later on. What is it about exploring new places, new cultures that, that you find so valuable? It's the new. It's meeting people. It's meeting environments. It's the different topography, the different foods, the different geographies. It also stems from my father and mother. My father went to CERN, 
in Switzerland, mm. and he spent four years there as a high-energy physicist. And I was born there. My sister was born there. We were living in France in a tiny town nearby the border. But I think that constant fascination with people and meeting them was brought into my life very, very early on. Well, Bruce Mohamed, let's take you back to the start. As you say, you were born in Switzerland, raised in the US Midwest. Your parents, both being scientists, I gather, encouraged you and your older siblings to be curious about the world around you. I would agree also just to be independent, to really do what we wanted to do. And what was the young Bruce like as a kid? The young Bruce was a geek, Uh very much so. Uh, I did a lot with different types of light microscopy as a kid. I was into classical music. I had a French horn group that would come to my house from neighboring cities. I was your kind of classic, somewhat of a loner, Mm. uh, but enjoyed just doing things. What about school then? I I gather it was quite a progressive place that you went to. Yes, I was very lucky for my secondary school education. So in the US, one does four years of high school, and it was a progressive state-sponsored school in that things like mathematics we could do on our own and not do with a teacher. So I was able to get through a couple years of calculus. And because I was going through quite quickly my education, they were good enough to let me have a year out during school. So I had a discussion with my parents whether or not just to go through in three years instead of four years. But I was quite small for my age and a bit immature socially. So they recommended instead I take a year out. How old were you then? Oh, gosh, I must have been 16, I think. So (laughs) I spent three months doing photography in Yosemite with a college group, which I really enjoyed. I have a real passion for photography. And then I spent a few months at Caltech as a lab assistant, but they freaked out when I walked in the door. They hired me based on my resume and didn't realize how, how young, how I young was. you were. <laughs> so I spent a few months there and then I spent six months at Macron Research Laboratories in Chicago and commuted there. It starts to sound like you're a bit of a child prodigy. <laughs> I wasn't a child prodigy. I just enjoyed science and yeah, I was yeah. good. Well, you went back to finish high school. Then in 1980, you went off to the University of California, Santa Cruz, still weighing up which of your two great loves to major in, mathematics or music. But when you came home for the summer after your first year there, I gather all your plans were quite suddenly stopped in their tracks. Yeah, so I had a real fun year at UC Santa Cruz. I really liked it. And that was also a period that I came out as being gay. And then I did a summer of archaeology in southern Illinois, which was quite fun. At the end of that, a couple of weeks before uh, heading off to my second year of university, I came out to my father. Um, basically, that didn't quite work out as well as we would have liked. He's absolutely fine with it now. But, I mean, it just took him by surprise yeah, initially. Yeah. But as a result, I didn't go back to my second year of university, but I went to France. I got on a plane, standby. Was I had, this all sort of an angry reaction to I you? I never your had father? an angry reaction to no. my father. I think it was just a reaction of 
maybe it was my one time of showing my independence. And I had always wanted to learn French. So I went to France for a year, found myself a program to learn French with. Mm. And then I decided I didn't want to go back to the U.S. yet. And I had heard that you could earn a living teaching English in Taiwan. And so I said, oh, why not? And I got a one-way ticket to Taiwan via Hong Kong, landed in Taipei with, I think, $150 in my pocket, and then found myself a lovely family who exchanged room and board for teaching them English. And I learned Mandarin. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun. And when I had been there for a week, I then contacted my mother and father and told them, I'm no longer in Europe, I'm in Taiwan. So I hadn't actually told them. Right. <laughs> so, so I spent six months there and then said, okay, I need to get on with my education. So I applied to Reed College in the west of the U.S., small liberal arts college. I did a major in physics and a minor in music. And I was gung-ho on going into a career in lasers and optics, which had always fascinated me. But at the end of two and a half years, I applied to the U.S. Peace Corps. So clearly your thirst for exploring other places, other cultures, hadn't been quenched. You decide to go overseas again, join the U.S. Peace Corps, the, the, the U.S. government's international aid program that deploys volunteers all around the world. What prompted your decision? I saw a talk that some returned Peace Corps volunteers gave. I knew that eventually I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to study something profoundly, but it wasn't quite ready. And I think, like many teenagers, I threw a couple balls in the air, and the Peace Corps landed. I went through a series of interviews. They were absolutely delighted to get someone who could teach physics and spoke fluent French. Well, you ended up in West Africa, in Niger, yeah. teaching physics... And chemistry. And chemistry to high school kids in French. Yes, it was wonderful. So there was three months of training in the capital, Niamey. I asked for a post that was absolutely the farthest away possible from bureaucracy in the capital. 20 hours driving on good days from Niamey to Difa, which is near Lake Chad. And the first thing I encountered was a whole bunch of locusts, which were just covering the roads as I was approaching Difa the last couple hours. And there were a few car accidents as a result of all of these locusts. And in fact, your, your whole experience in those vast African landscapes actually then started you thinking about earth sciences. Yeah, I think this really was a turning point for me, the Peace Corps. Two years in Niger, I enjoyed feeling that I was making a difference teaching, but also I was constantly outdoors. I was experiencing high temperatures, you know, 40, 42, 45 degrees were not uncommon. Dust storms, the winds that blow from the Sahara down into the Sahel region, the drought, the desertification, these all completely changed my direction of where I wanted to head my career. So I came back from the U.S. Peace Corps after my two years. But you, you ended up in California where you mm. got an engineering job at Stanford University's Linear Accelerator. Now, this is a, a lab devoted to research in high-energy particle physics. In fact, a place I know very well. It's very famous because this is where quarks, these elementary building blocks of matter, were discovered back in the late 60s. But 
it really crystallised for you the fact that you wanted to go in a different direction. Yes, it was an interesting three years. You know, I enjoyed being in California, having a salary, but then decided it was time to get on with my education. And so in 1991, you went across the country to Cornell University to start a PhD in geophysics and stratigraphy, a branch of geology involved with the Earth's geological strata. Yeah, so I spent six years for my PhD. My major advisor is Terry Jordan. My minor advisor was Donald Turcott, and both of them had a very strong influence on sort of my science. Mm. But then with Don Turcott, we started looking at the statistics of natural hazards. The statistics mean how many big, how many medium, how many little might occur of wildfires or landslides or floods and then taking those statistical underlining distributions and saying, well, why might this make a difference for practitioners, for geologists, for mm. climate scientists in what they are doing? We might come to one or two of those papers in a moment. But after your PhD, you could head off on your travels again, because at that point you've been awarded a prestigious Fulbright Research Fellowship to study natural hazards in Argentina. And I gather that was a life-changing year for you, not just for your career, but for your personal life as well. Yes. It was actually a year where I started to explore much more blended records of natural hazards, looking at the archival past, looking at artwork and diaries and combining them with instrumental records to really explore this when I was in Argentina. It was also a time for me to get published many of my papers from my PhD, and it was a time for me to relax a little bit in a beautiful area of the world. Mendoza is extraordinary. Uh, I had a partner there, and we were living together. And so the Fulbright had ended at 10 months. I had returned my ticket. I decided I would make a life with, with Dario. And there was a car accident, and he passed away. So it was a bit of a hard period for me. Um, after that, Don Turcott, I actually didn't tell him why. I just said I've had a significant issue. Mm. He found funding for a year postdoc for me at Cornell University. I was a bit of a mess. So mm. I came mm. back. I spent a year again at Cornell. We published some more papers. And then one of the papers we published was in science. And it was actually just as I was leaving Argentina. And, and that's one of the world's leading research It was a, a very a good paper deal. to be publishing in. So you'd made an impact. And the title of that paper, Forest Fires, an Example of Self-Organised Critical Behaviour. Talk me through what you'd found. We basically took multiple data sets of forest fires and we looked at the distribution of big, medium and small. And what we found was an underlining distribution that was quite different than what was in common literature. It was rejected from three papers before it was published in Science, and we found this underlining behavior, but we also compared it to an idea that was quite prevalent at the time, self-organized behavior, and it's the idea that systems will push themselves into 
a certain behavior, and in this case was called a heavy tail distribution, that we have very few big events, more medium ones, and lots and lots of little ones. And so if we think of the common bell curve, where we have a thin distribution, a heavy tail distribution, if you plot it, it would be a straight line. And so we found this underlining distribution, and it was published. And what it ended up with is this was a nice way of characterizing fires, the area of fires for given regions of the U.S. This idea of not thinking of natural hazards as single hazards, but rather as groups of natural hazards that occur over time and in space as groupings, and that there's a certain behavior that they have. So, and that behavior spans the, the scale of, of whether they're it, small or large yeah, forest it, it fires. it spans the behavior. Later for landslides, we mm. found a different underlining behavior that had not been observed. Mm. We did the same for tornadoes making sure that we were finding underlining behavior and not trying to what we call curve fit. So what I could compare forest fires to is the Gutenberg-Richter scale for earthquakes. They also have a heavy tail distribution where you have very few big ones, more medium ones, and lots and lots of small ones. And this is the same thing that we see for wildfire areas. You see the same thing for landslide areas for the very biggest ones and the medium ones, and then it rolls over so you get very few small ones occurring. And so all of these statistical distributions have implications for modeling, mathematical modeling, computer modeling, for practitioners, how we do risk. So the point here isn't so much just to model these hazards like forest fires that have already happened and fit them as data into your model, but to use that model then to make predictions about the likelihood yeah. of them happening so, in the future. So I wouldn't use the word prediction because okay. that would mean you're going to tell people what's the date, location, and how big is something going to be. So we use the word forecasting or probabilistic forecasting. Right, right. And so we can use the past to get an idea of what the statistics have been like And often people just talk about the big ones. We also have to talk about the medium ones and the small ones because those are what can contribute to the build-up of risk in a region. Well, in the year 2000, Bruce, you made a big decision to move to the UK to take up a job at King's College London. I mean, after everything you'd been through, all the, the travel, the emotional turmoil in your life, did you finally feel you could now settle down? Uh, Yes, it's a lovely department. The Department of Geography grew from very small to very big during my 22 years there. It was a lovely combination of physical and social sciences. It is a lovely combination of the two. And my first couple of years, I probably overworked, probably a reaction to just uh, passing away of someone that I held very close to me. And I decided I've got to stop just working 12-hour days, and I joined a gay-lesbian eating group. There I met a person who we were both the very youngest ones there, and I didn't get to talk with him, but I overheard he was at King's College London doing a postdoc there. And we later met up. We ended up starting doing things a couple times a week. He introduced me to a whole group of friends 
and I really started feeling settled in London. Mm. Now, of course, as every academic knows, once you start teaching, it gets trickier to find the time to continue with your research. But after you'd been at King's for a few years, you took a year to visit the Centre for Industrial and Applied Mathematics at Oxford University. Yeah, so it was actually a, a discipline-hopping grant from UKRI. And after a couple of years of teaching and wondering if I was ever going to have time for research... It allowed me to discipline hop from geography to the Oxford Centre for Industrial and Applied Mathematics, where I was able to get a couple very key papers published, one on landslides and another on forest fires, both of which have really stood the test of time, and I really enjoyed working on those. The, the, the paper on landslides in particular I find fascinating. How has it helped our understanding of landslides? What it did is it helped, A, better define what is the risk of large landslides occurring in a given region. What we found is that no matter what the trigger is, an earthquake, a rainfall event, a snowmelt, you end up with the same statistical distribution of very few small ones coming up to a peak of medium ones, and then, like earthquakes, this dying down so you have fewer very medium ones and very, very few big ones. And what you can do with that is you can start putting these into mathematical models, working out equations for erosion and doing some very basic things like if I have a magnitude 6.5 earthquake on average, how many landslides will be triggered? How much volume will they take? And what's the area that will occur? And so I later started doing work with PhD students drawing from this distribution to say, how close are these to road networks if they occur? and looking at underlining landslide susceptibility. It does sound unlikely, you know, earthquakes, landslides, um, forest fires. Physically, these are very different sorts of events, but there's a lot of connectivity between there them. There are a lot of commonalities in the statistics, and this is where some of the ideas of self-organized behavior came mm. from, is that the natural system, be it physical or social, will drive itself into certain statistical patterns. Mm. Well, in 2007, Bruce, you were made president of the Natural Hazards Division of the European Geosciences Union, a role that you held for four years. Meanwhile, your King's career had been steadily progressing from lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, full professor in 2013 of natural and environmental hazards. And also around this point, you started exploring a subject that you've subsequently become very well known for, this multi-hazard relationship, those cascades I mentioned in the introduction. Tell me about them. I had a PhD student, Joel Gill, and we decided to do a project on multi-hazards. And so we looked at the interactions between different natural hazards. So is there an interaction between earthquakes and landslides? Yes. Is there an interaction between earthquakes and floods? Yes. And we took 21 single hazards, ranging from earthquakes to floods to tornadoes to space weather, mm. and looked at the interaction of all of these and mapped these out. And so you have 441 possible interactions, 21 by 21, and of these, we found theoretical evidence for 90 interactions. And we put this into a paper, and it became one of the major papers. 
at the time, there were very few people really working on multi-hazards. Ten years later, many people are right. doing it. Almost every research grant has the word multi-hazards in it or hazard cascades. It just wasn't in mm. the literature that much before that. And so later we then brought in anthropogenic processes, climate change or urbanization. That's an important point is when you say anthropogenic. Uh, you know, yes. This is the influence of people, communities how they themselves can influence these multi-hazard situations, right? Yes, humans can increase the likelihood or decrease the likelihood of natural hazards. And natural hazards, when they occur, can influence humans. And so it works both ways. Mm. That is where my research is sort of at now, thinking of these hazard scenarios and bringing in vulnerability, people, thinking about all the components of risk and how these might impact environments. And you wanted your research to make a difference. You started work on a game-changing project in India called Landslip to develop early warning systems for landslides. Yeah, so the British Geological Survey approached me and asked if I would co-lead with them a project on landslides. And so during my sabbatical seven years ago, with our colleagues at Geological Survey of India, Practical Action in India, with academic institutes at Amrita University, we really co-produced a project on landslide early warning. And that ended in June of last year. You always get to the end of a project and say, have I achieved anything? I think we achieved something. There was legacy in that the Geological Survey of India has taken up the tools that we developed during that period. There were a lot of collaborative projects. I have PhD students who did work on landslides. There was a lot that came from that project. And this is something that I am bringing into every one of my grants now is what's going to happen to this research? Have we done an institutional mapping? Who mm. is going to benefit from this? I will not do research now without social scientists being involved because I recognize the strengths they bring to a project, even if it has certain physical sciences roots to mm. it. Well, this year, Bruce, you left King's College after more than 20 years to take up this role of executive director at Durham University's Institute of Hazard Risk and Resilience. Was it a wrench? So it was a wrench moving away from the geography department at King's College London. Durham is a chance to continue working with hazards. It's a lovely group up there. And the idea of this institute is practical solutions. And that is something that I am immediately interested in. Another fast-developing trend I gather you've got an eye on is virtual reality. Now, a lot of people will associate VR with you know, teenage video gamers rather than helping with risk analysis. What's the application for you and for your work? Virtual reality I got into about a year ago. I am thinking about ways that we can collaborate on hazard risk and resilience. I'm thinking about ways that laboratories, say the Geological Survey of India and the British Geological Survey, can be virtually looking in the same location. So we've already trialed some things with the BGS, which were quite successful, about just going to an area and seeing like if you go into Google Street, you see a nice view of the street. Now imagine that in virtual reality. So at 360 degrees, you are there. 
And I think that it's just going to become better the ways we interact in virtual reality. So I have encouraged people, lecturers, academics, just get the kits, put them on and play games. So I have been doing a lot of virtual reality fishing uh, the past <laughs> week. I have been binging on it, but I've been talking with people. It's just going to get better, virtual reality, and I think any academic should be on the cutting edge of that right now. I need to get my act together then, get my virtual reality headset. Bruce Mellonwood, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you so much. Do you ever feel a bit overwhelmed when you check the news on your phone first thing in the morning? Whenever I open up my phone, there are just endless warnings of more extreme weather to come. I'm Hannah. I'm the presenter of a new podcast called What in the World from the BBC World Service. We're going to be here trying to help you make sense of the world around you so you can feel a little bit better about what's happening in the world. You can find What in the World wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Wenn Sie diesen Podcast hören, wissen Sie bereits, wie wichtig es ist, Fragen zu stellen. Bei Aramco helfen uns unsere Fragen, eine bessere Zukunft zu gestalten. Wie können wir die Kraftstoffe von morgen zur Verfügung stellen? Wie können wir die Ressourcen von heute zum Treibstoff für unsere gemeinsame Zukunft machen? Wie können wir eine Welt mit Energie versorgen, die sich keinen Ausfall leisten kann? Wie können wir Neugier säen und so Ideenreichtum ernten? Mehr zu Innovationen, die uns voranbringen? Aramco.com slash das Wie treibt uns an. Thank <laughs> you.